Welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a film and TV editor, and I talk to my colleagues about the art and craft of film editing. My guest on this first podcast is appropriate. Mark Sanger was also one of the very first guests on the text version of Art of the Cut when he won the Oscar for Best Editing for Gravity in 2013, a film for which he was also nominated for an Ace Eddie for Best Edited Dramatic Feature Film. Mark started as an assistant editor and VFX editor back in the late 1990s and worked on films like The Mummy Returns and 102 Dalmatians. As a VFX editor, he worked on Die Another Day, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Children of Men, Sweeney Todd, and Alice in Wonderland. In addition to editing Gravity, Sanger has also edited Last Nights, Transformers The Last Night, and Mowgli Legend of the Jungle. In this interview, We'll be discussing his latest film, Pokemon Detective Pikachu, directed by Rob Letterman and starring Ryan Reynolds and Justice Smith. Mark and I spoke over Skype. I called Mark in London. I actually went to see Detective Pikachu while I was teaching an editing class in Shenzhen, China, and saw it in 3D. I asked Mark if he edited in 3D or whether the editing decisions were all initially made in 2D. As far as I'm concerned, when it comes down to the editing of picture, I apply the same methodology to 2D and 3D as I do to cutting sound and picture. Uh, and that is I start with the most basic of uh, principles, which is do the visuals go together? It, when it comes down to 2D and 3D, my idea is always to cut in 2D because then if you know that the, the cuts are working at that level, then everything else is, is just a bonus on top of that. If you start working in, uh, in 3D and you cut in the three-dimensional environment, my argument uh, is that you would have to go back and recut your 2D version uh, because cutting in 3D is a very, very different uh, universe to cutting in two dimensions. So I always start in 2D, and if that's working, what you can then do is in the, in the stereographic um, environment at the end in, during post-production, then if any of the cuts are jarring, say if you're cutting from a, a close-up to a wide angle, which is you know, invariably the, the cuts that, sort of, that tend to give you a headache in, in 3D at the minute, well, at least until technology improves, that's where you can adjust the curve of the, the 3D. So you, on that cut, for instance, you can then make the blend uh, across that cut almost a, a two-dimensional blend and then... The, you can gradually open it up across the, uh, the, the following cut. But I, I would argue you have to do it that way around. If you shot in 2D, then you have to, to, to do it that way around because that's the only way of genuinely ensuring that you have a good edit in the 2D environment and a good edit in the 3D environment. Sure. If, you, if you shot it in 3D, it's a very different kettle of fish. And so this was not shot in 3D? It was not. It was shot on film. The intention was always to shoot it in a way and cut it in a way that uh, harks back to the nostalgia of, you know, the film noir environment. Uh, when you were saying blend in 3D, you weren't talking about dissolve, right? You were talking about the, the 3D-ness of the, of the image? Yeah, it's like, um, you know, there are some shots in Gravity, for instance, where you we, we can cut from a, a big close-up of Sandra Bullock's face, and of course, in Gravity, it's just you're, you're, you're then dealing with the, the, the void of space. So you're definitely dealing with very close close-ups and very wide expanses, and some of those cuts in the three-dimensional world 
when you cut to those wide shots, you're actually almost cutting to just a two-dimensional image. Right. Um, but the reason I would argue that the 3D works uh, in any of these movies at all is when those cuts are imperceptible uh, to the viewer. While there are, there will be some shots in there in these big, wide, expensive shots that you will be very aware that you're you're seeing a, a three-dimensional image. The editing of the two-dimensional version of the film for me is what will always drive the serographic version of the uh, post-production process. Sure. And I would think, you know, over the course of the lifetime of the film, most people are watching it in 2D. You're watching it on your home TV set. You're watching yeah. it on a 2D movie screen. Yeah. You're watching it on your phone. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and it's for that very reason that um, I, it is always my preference to make it work at the most granular level. Depending upon what the the film is, I will invariably cut the scene with uh, mute um, just to get the rhythm and the pacing of the visuals correct. And then the dialogue part is something that then informs that mute cut. So I won't stick on the mute cut necessarily, but the dialogue part will then inform that and it will grow from that point. But you have to start with a seed um, and let it grow. And that seed is the the raw visual cut. Now, in the case of Detective Pikachu, I did stray from that slightly in that when you are cutting, for instance, a dialogue between one actor who has been uh, pre-recorded and another actor who is reacting to playback of that uh, pre-recording on set, then there is uh, a radio. What I would invariably do is create a radio play of the scene. And because in the case of Detective Pikachu, you've got a buddy cop uh, format for the movie, which means that the dialogue is what is driving the rhythm and pacing of the scene. And there's some great dialogue, you know, particularly in, in the, the bar scene in Detective Pikachu where, uh, you know, Tim is talking to uh, Pikachu and Pikachu's jumping up and running back and forth on the bar. And you've got this banter that's going back and forth. Now, that's something that we have to create in post-production. And so in the case of that film, I will do a pass, which is edit the dialogue together, find the best takes in, in terms of performance, choose the performances that we think best are driving the scene in the way that we uh, we want it to go from the practical shoot side find any pre-recorded material of one of the you know for instance ryan reynolds who was often uh, recorded separately and then create a radio play without the visuals that runs in the way that it should do at that point then it's almost a reverse of what I would do on a, on a more conventional shoot, which is that radio play has driven it because that's the only way you can cut a scene. When, you, when you're dealing with an actor and a bunch of empty plates that will ultimately be filled with some animation, it's really the only way you can do it. Drive the, the rhythm of the scene with the radio play of the dialogue and then let the, the cutting of the visuals inform that rhythm. So you, then you don't stick to it because then you realize, well, the rhythm's working, but Pikachu literally doesn't have enough time from get to get from A to B. So at that point, you're thinking, well, note to the director and note to the uh, visual effects guys, can we uh, discuss what Pikachu could, could be doing in this moment that would allow the necessary blocking of the scene, but also won't betray the rhythm of the dialogue? You were talking about 
pre-recorded, did you get Ryan Reynolds' recording performances, audio performance, before they shot the movie? Yeah, it's, Rob Letterman was very, very wise, um, having uh, had lots of experience in this realm before, and that is, we did, I think, two sessions of recordings with Catherine, uh, Justice, and Ryan in a room together, where they were basically doing a read-through, but also we were going to be uh, extracting some of uh, Ryan's performances and using those in the, in the film. So that was a very useful tool for everybody to be able to, that was pre-shoot and that, that was very informative for everybody in order to gauge what is the movie we're making here and also for Rob, of course, to go away and think, well, actually, I, there's, a, there's a few gags that, that uh, Ryan clearly improvised there that we absolutely need to incorporate visually into the blocking of the scene. So those two pre-recorded sessions were very, very helpful. And then again, Rob was very smart, and I think it may actually have been Ryan's suggestion for Ryan to be available for the first few days of filming so that Justice really did get to have an opportunity to understand in the real environment that they were shooting in to get a gauge of the story that we were making. So for a few days, Ryan was there doing off-camera lines, and that really oh, got the, the rhythm and the, uh, and the characterization really um, solidified. Rob was very specific over what those scenes would be that we would shoot up front in order to really maximize the back and forth that we needed to uh, ensure we carried on through the rest of the shoot. And then, of course, it was a process of, as we were going through shoot, uh, there would be the recordings of those original rehearsals I would have created a radio play of all of Rob's selected performances on Ryan, and uh, they were used as playback on set for Justice to react to. Was he in an earpiece or something? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. that's it's so interesting, because I just cut a film that the person spends a lot of time on the phone. Yeah. And all the performances on the phone were done by the director <laughs> instead of the actor, and the timing of the performances were so different yeah. And the delivery was so yeah. bland for the actor to, to support against. That's really smart. I love the fact that they did the recording, the pre-recordings with multiple actors. It wasn't just a voiceover session with Ryan. Right. That's right. huge. It is huge. And it, again, it comes from Rob's uh, experience uh, doing that and things like Monsters vs. Aliens and that, those sort of things. You know, he was able to, to um, have the foresight to, to see some of the pitfalls of where we could have ended up. Um, had we not done that. There are a lot of movies that maybe don't make that decision, and I would argue there's a disconnect, a subliminal disconnect for the audience where they won't necessarily understand what it is that they're feeling, but they are witnessing a false event where they can tell that this, this dialogue was actually something going on between two different people at two different times and in, in space and time. So. I would argue that anything where you can counteract that subliminal feeling of a lack of reality, that's going to make your overall storytelling more cohesive. So, yes, I think that worked for everybody because what we couldn't end up having is a, uh, a rhythm to the scene that was one thing when you shoot it with the three actors doing a read-through and then something else entirely, something that didn't have that, that life and energy um, when we came to shoot it practically. Yeah. Now, that said, there was always somebody on set who was available and to uh, play back, read back uh, Ryan's lines. But 
I think this was crucial. They had listened to Ryan's selected takes mm-hmm. and uh, learned the the rhythm and the pacing of those lines so that occasionally, if it wasn't practical for playback to be going on, that actor on set could be at least giving justice uh, the, the, the rhythm and pacing that would honour the performance that Ryan and he would ultimately be, uh, be uh, performing together. Yeah, because he had a very distinctive, I mean, he's a kind of a manic character, so you can't have a laconic performance against it. No, one of the greatest joys I've had in the industry is sitting in an ADR stage with uh, Ryan Reynolds just um, <laughs> improvising lines and uh, bringing so much life to the movie. And, you know, there's obviously a... Uh, a more explicit version of the uh, the jokes that are going on in the movie, and um, invariably those are the ones that you really want to to, to use um, because those are the ones that I, I found the funniest. But he would sit there and, and give uh, Rob Letterman, the director, a whole uh, broad spectrum of different uh, performances, and for somebody like me, you know that that puts you in a position where. You've got a wealth of different options that you can follow, and uh, auditioning with Rob Letterman, which ones we're going to use, is um, uh, is just you know. <laughs> some of those days were um, uh, you know some of the most fun on the show. I believe it. Talk to me a little bit about editing improv lines. It's not the same. You're not looking at a script going, which performance of this exact line do I like better? You're saying, which line do I like better? Well, there's that, and then it goes, uh, in, in the visual effects realm, it, it goes a, a step deeper as well. There's one thing where you're editing improvised lines between a group of people who are uh, all sharing the same space together as those lines are being improvised. That in itself has its, um, uh, its, its pros and cons. It's another thing entirely when the improvised lines are being improvised, let's say, in an ADR session that is being recorded after the practical shoot has been done. And in that scenario, there's a line that you really want to use because... But there's no reaction. But there's no reactions. And so in that scenario, you're either in the position where you go off and you seek a reaction and you just can't find one that justifies using the line. (laughs) And it would feel so uh, manufactured in the edit that the line would fall flat mm-hmm. or the beauty of it will be that you go through, you scroll through and you find a reaction from, you know, someone like Justice Smith who is, who does give such a, a wonderful palette of different reactions on every single take that often you could go in there and you could find a moment with Justice and you go, oh my God, look at that. It's It wasn't meant for that moment, but it worked so perfectly it was divine intervention. And do you have to do some kind of organization to, to be able to find those reactions? Do you create select reels of reactions because you know you're going to be in that situation? My, I mean, my working process is always based upon performance anyway. And so there is a process that I go through on any film, whatever it is, that is exactly the same, which is I have my uh, assistants. And this is, oh, by the way, this is fairly uh, common process so it's it's not like I, I have a trademark but this is what works for me on on every single movie and that is i have my assistants go through and mark up every single line that is said uh in every single take and sometimes those lines are identical in every take and sometimes those lines might be slightly different 
And uh, that way, when I'm constructing the scene, I can see every single delivery of that line and I can work out immediately, well, it's going to be between take four and take six and you audition both of those and then you make a decision. Uh, and obviously editing is all about just decision making of decision, decision making of decision. And that's how I construct a scene together. Now, when we get into the, uh, the world of uh, improvisation, then uh, what you'll find is is that you may have already assembled the scene in one way, but then you need to go back and do a deep dive on some of the ADR or the, rec the lines that were, were recorded uh, subsequent to the practical shoot. And in those uh, scenarios, it's about creating fresh daily uh, performance sequences, which I will then put together. I'll go through and I'll say, well, I need that moment, that moment, and that moment from each take. And I'll say to Rob Letterman, Rob, please just give me five minutes. I'm going to go away and find all of those moments. Uh, he'll have an espresso. He'll come back. And then I'll present each one of those moments to him. And then we uh, will make a decision. So the, the performance process, uh, to answer your question, the performance process, rather the process of dis uh, discovering the performances, is always ongoing. And those select sequences that you have, you may find yourself going back to them six weeks later to be looking for a slightly different moment. But without that basis of the way that your dailies or my dailies are formatted for me by my amazing assistants, then that process would uh, not be possible. Right. And I work very similarly. The only difference I do is I don't tend to go by line because I feel like it breaks it up too much. Mm -hmm. So I usually break a scene up into like six or eight beats. Yep. And then I just do the beats instead of the lines, which you may do too. I, I, do, I do exactly the same thing. Is, uh, what I do is if this, I do a, it's, it's basically the initial process is a, a two-stage process. I get the dailies broken down in that format by the assistants. And then I create a separate version of that, that sequence, uh, which is my... Uh, sequence, which is where I go in a little bit more to a granular level and break the scene up into beats, as you say. And to me, the moment when you get, you know, six cameras on a on a conversation, that's regardless of how big the movie is or how small the movie is or how big the scene is or how small the scene is, that's always daunting because you don't know you're in, in inverted commas, into the scene. Uh, and you don't know you're out. And you can only really be informed by finding how you left the previous scene and what performance and camera angle, camera move is best going to uh, work editorially with that. That, to me, is the moment where I start to see the shape of the dailies. And if you don't have that, your scene broken up into beats, then um, I don't think you'd be able to I certainly wouldn't be able to focus on how one line is interconnecting with the with the next line. So yes, I think going into a, a scene initially, uh, as exactly as you say, if you don't break it up into line by line and then beat by beat as a as a consequence of that, mm -hmm. then I very quickly get uh, come unstuck and get lost within the scene and just have to start again. So. That may be just me, but if I there's something very comforting about uh, if you've got four pages of dialogue and uh, your assistants have broken it down into lines and then you break it down into beats, all of a sudden everything becomes very clear 
and the route that you're going to take uh, to cut the scene becomes a lot more satisfying. Since I use that same technique, I want to play devil's advocate on two points of, of what I think are the problems of that technique. Yeah. The first one, we started this conversation about breaking the scenes down because of reactions. And you specifically said you were using reactions that weren't necessarily supposed yeah. to be for that line. Yeah. So that means if you've broken the beats down to be the beats, you're yeah. now looking for reactions that are outside of those beats. Yes, um, but it's a, an extremely valid point, but that is one of the moments where, for instance, if you do need suddenly to, to find a, a fresh reaction that had not been broken down into those beats, that would be one of those moments where I would say to the director, okay, I need to do a deep dive on the whole scene because it could be that the reaction we're looking for isn't necessarily exactly the one we have in our heads, but it's actually just something, um, it could even be pre-action or post-cut. Absolutely. And, and so that requires a deep dive on all of the dailies. And yes, essentially you have to start again. Yeah. Uh, and re-break the scene down. But that's that's when you just need a, um, uh, you know, the patience of somebody like uh, Rob Letterman to be able to go, okay, I get it, I'll give you 30 minutes. And um, you can then go away and really scrutinize. Because then it's so beneficial for the director too, because then the director isn't sitting with the editor desperately trying to find something amongst the four hours of dailies, but is then being presented with 90 seconds of options from which you can then whittle that, uh, you know, you can then whittle down a bunch of selects. And that, that's the, the value I find in breaking the selects down into, the, into those beats is that sometimes if you've got a scene and you've got 40 minutes of dailies, I can't yeah. wrap my head around 40 minutes of dailies. But if it's broken down yeah. where, okay, here's the first blocking of the scene where they go, come into the room and go to the table. Yeah. Now I only have to watch three minutes of dailies. Because yeah. you can't cut the rest of the footage in for the, that walk-in anyhow. So all you can look at is three minutes. I'm like, okay, I can keep three minutes of dailies in my head. Yes. Now, the danger, I, the other danger I find with doing that is because you've kind of pre-edited the scene into these little teeny chunks, you don't tend to let the edits play longer. Unless you right. really think it through and like go, I want this to just play even because I'm using the select to cut from. Is that what you're yeah. doing? Yes, invariably. But I think the scene has to grow organically, mm -hmm. and so uh, the most difficult part for me is the is the beginning of the scene. Because if the beginning of the scene, then you you can then see ah, now I can see where this is going to grow. You don't necessarily then need to stick to the dailies to the, to the selects that you've chosen. Yep. But most importantly. In that secondary process, after the assistants have put it together, in the secondary process when I'm going through and breaking it down into my own sequence, which part of that process is the selection of the beats, or um, in that process, that's how I learn the dailies. Mm -hmm. And so at that point, once the scene begins to grow organically, if you're looking for a moment that wasn't necessarily in your original selects, but you're very aware of because you've broken that, that the whole sequence down and you know your, your dailies, then, then it's just a case of going, okay, well, I'll, go, I'll just go and grab that. And then you need to decide well, whether or not has the, the, the shape of what you were originally selecting, uh, is that actually working now? Or maybe what you actually need to be doing is to go off and, um, and find something different. But I only ever make selects, as it were, in that process where 
the director and I need to go off and find something slightly different for a unique moment. Other than that, I will always have uh, all of the takes, whether or not the director selected them or not, marked up by the, the assistants in the way that I outlined, because they're all potential selects. Mm -hmm. One of the great things I find with those kind of broken down selects reels is they're great for collaborating with a director. Correct. Because then you can yeah. show him, like, uh, like, it's the classic, is that the best take? <laughs> you know, you're like, here you go. Here's three minutes. I can show you everything you got. Exactly. I think I think uh, what those sequences do is they they, you, they give director the your director the confidence to know that they're seeing everything, that nothing's being getting missed along the way, uh, because that would be a tragedy. The worst possible outcome could be that you 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 design a scene one way and then. Uh, six weeks later, you turn the scene over to visual effects, and and actually there was the take that the director was looking for, and it wasn't, and it was never presented to them. That would be the cardinal sin. So, I think for directors to be able to see each and every single performance that they committed to film uh, on the day of the shoot, it gives them the confidence to be able to say, "Yes, thank God, we got it," or, "Well, we didn't get it." quite as I planned, but at least I can see everything here in order to be make, to be able to make the decisions about how we move forward. Mm -hmm. One of the other things you mentioned was how important it is to find your way into the scene or to know how you're going to get out of the scene, to yeah. how you're going to end up. Uh, so when you're cutting dailies, you don't have that opportunity. Very few movies are cut linearly or shot linearly, although some, you know, you get a chance where you're not editing the movie until after everything's shot. As you say, there's three scenarios, basically. The first scenario is that you are perhaps you're in the, one of those unique situations where the movie's already been assembled and you're just going in to uh, refine that in some way, in, which means that you get to reassemble the movie in chronological order. Now, that's rare for me just because of the very nature of the films that I seem to be offered, which is visual effects heavy movies. Uh, the visual effects schedule drives post-production and therefore you are being forced to uh, turn over scenes early on for the sake of the visual effects work without necessarily knowing what the end of the scene is coming from and what it's necessarily going to. That's scenario one. Scenario two is the scenario that I tend to be working with in, in that visual effects realm, which is where you are not presented with the benefit of knowing what's preceding and what's following. You're just cutting dailies as they're shot, which you, are you know, you can, in that In scenario two, all you can do is put the best possible version of the scene together that you uh, can hope for, and hopefully the ins and the outs of the scene are going to bind with the scenes that follow. The most beneficial is scenario three, which is there is an ongoing conversation between you and the director about either there are planned outs to a scene and planned ins to a scene based upon the script. And the director is in a position to be able to actually have that conversation with you before they are shot. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the ideal. Um, but then the ongoing conversation can be, well, look, we turn over this scene. It didn't have the out that necessarily wanted, but I've often gone back to a director and said, Look, we shot scene four. You like to cut the assembly of scene four. I know you had this idea about the in on scene five, but how about this? And uh, director may turn around and go, absolutely not. No, I want to stick with exactly what we 
what I originally planned, and therefore please make sure that scene four ends to accommodate that. Mm -hmm. Or uh, occasionally the director will say, yeah, you're right, I didn't anticipate actually shooting the end of scene four that way, but that um, uh, scene five needs to start that way as a result. And it's part of the evolutionary process, or oh, sorry, the um, yeah, the developing process of, of making a film is that uh, with all the best intentions in the world, once you're actually shooting, uh, if there's something better than planned uh, that comes from uh, a moment of uh, epiphany on set, then clearly you need to, to work with that. And that's definitely part of the editor's role with the director is to keep on reminding them, hey, by the way, I know your head's in that scene at the minute, but just think about this when you go into, into uh, scene five. Directors are completely overburdened with people telling them no all day long um, because of the nature of uh, the logistics of filming uh, movies. Yeah. Um, it's very, very difficult to always come to come away any day thinking that was a brilliant day, I got everything that I wanted. So for the editor to be able to always be on the phone at the end of the day and go, hey, hope you had a great day, glad, yeah, I'll, I'll take all of that, what you're, you're saying into account, and... Here's something to consider for next week. How much conversation do you actually have during shooting, or do you do you keep your eye on the schedule so you know, hey, Rob's going to be shooting this tomorrow, uh, and I can inform that? How, how carefully are you looking at the production schedule? In the case of Detective Pikachu, very closely, because, one, I would need to make sure that the radio plays for each scene uh, of Ryan Reynolds if, he's, if it was one of the days when he's not on set, then those radio plays need to be supplied to set so that everybody has enough time for the technical process of making those radio plays available to the actors. So it may be that I'm cutting uh, a scene that is required urgently by visual effects, but I also need to be keeping my eye on the ball with the schedule because uh, literally they won't be able to turn over on the day shoot if they haven't got you know, one of the key uh, Ryan Reynolds performance uh, to work to the following day. So there's that, but there's also on any movie where uh, you have a very tight shooting schedule and very tight visual effects schedule, and this one was extremely tight, you always have to be keeping an eye on the ball for a, a multitude of different events that are going to be uh, hitting you all in the face once you hit post-production. You need to be thinking about obviously sticking to the visual effects schedule so that there are no penalties incurred uh, by production and uh, for instance, to pluck one out of the ether, you know you're going to be previewing the movie at some stage. You know, for instance, you have to preview a version of the director's cut for the studio. What is it that you need to be uh, looking at in terms of the overall schedule that will help those screenings? Because you're going to be screening a version of the movie that has very, very few uh, animated characters in it. It's a, it's a raw version of the film, and, and that's difficult for anybody to watch. So... Uh, you're always thinking about what's going to be happening not only the next day but three months from now and six months from now because you drop the ball during the very early days of shoot and you lose momentum, uh, for want of a better metaphor, uh, the wheels come off the cart pretty fast. It's, it's interesting, on Detective Pikachu, uh, I had a little bit of a battle with some of the execs at Legendary because I normally bring on a music editor very, very early in the show, during the shoot. And the reason for that is is that when you're dealing with editing scenes so quickly for the visual effects schedule, you don't often have the time to lay up uh, music and sound 
for instance, in the in the way that you might do on a non-visual effect. Even though it's my inclination never to do music or sound uh, as an editor and, and always be able to offer that out to other people, it is a natural part of the, the process in the 21st century is that it's expected. Yep. Um, and so the problem is, as you say, if you don't get, for instance, the music edit right, the tone of the movie you ultimately end up presenting is dramatically affected by it. And if you're trying to sell this movie to people and the tone of the movie isn't right musically, then it's very, very difficult to salvage that at the last minute and try and make it work because everybody by that time, they're kind of snow blind by, by hearing uh, the, the track that they've been listening to. And often there is a, an unfortunate side effect that people start questioning whether or not the picture edit is correct. And so bringing on a music editor very early on in the process for me is crucial uh, in terms of one of those decisions that you need to make sooner rather than later because you can have a great version of the movie that works with uh, for you and the director with no sound effects and no music, but then you, and sound effects are always going to help you, but then layering in the wrong temp track for presentation to the studio or to uh, for a preview screening can drastically alter the um, the way that it is received. So um, my argument is always if you have, for instance, 10 weeks scheduled for a music editor budgeted for, use two of them or three of them even during the shoot because then at least you get the clarity of everybody agreeing what the music, what the temp track needs to be moving forward. You, so you were talking about screenings. Tell me a little bit of what did you try to do with animation or pre to be able to show? Yeah. What were you putting in there to show Pikachu yeah. in a plate? I don't think it was possibly anything too different from the way people work nowadays. It was a combination of a post team who were working uh, for me during the shoot, we were basic editorials actually based within Postface, uh, sorry, Previs and Postface. So that there was um, initially uh, the Previs team, I came on three months before we started shooting, wow. and some of the key sequences we, we put together because they need to be locked down very closely for uh, the shoot. I always like to be part of that process because it means that. The, the director and the editor have had an opportunity to work out the, the mechanics of a scene before it's dictated uh, by, um, the by the shot. And so on Detective Pikachu, I came on board and worked uh, with the previous team to design some of the sequences, some of the big sequences with and for Rob, because you know he's got so much on his plate if I, he could leave me to go away and work with them and then present something at the end of the day in order to give notes on, that was a, a, you know, always a benefit to him. So that, po- that pre-biz team, once we got into the shooting process, became the post-biz team, and we would often turn over, we would have a, a pre-official turnover or just for post-biz where um, we would start getting some of the, uh, the blocking sketched out uh, during the shooting process. And Framestore in particular had a great process called uh, SketchViz. It's not great for presentation, but it's extremely useful for solidifying early conversations about animation between the director, the editor, uh, and uh, the visual effects company. 
And basically, they just did. Um, it, it was like watching um, uh, an early, you know, Walt Disney movie, where they they literally just sketch animate on the sequence, and you wouldn't want to present it necessarily to uh, an audience. What it meant was that we weren't having a disconnected conversation between a previous company and a director and an editor that was then uh, followed up by the uh, visual effects company and the director and the editor. It was almost a live set of um, animation notes that we could update really fast to accommodate the way that sequence was coming together. So it was a combination of different tools that we used. And um, as with any process, I have to say, you start off using one palette, and by the end, you've learned to use that palette and adapt it and found some other ways, just because we're all professionals trying to um, evolve with the process. Was it third floor for Previs or somebody else? Uh, we used uh, uh, third floor were, yeah, they were on for the previous uh, and some of the post viz and then Framestore were using the uh, the SketchViz process. And so SketchViz they were, they were in-house. Is that, oh, SketchViz is an in-house uh, software or something? I'd never used it before, um, and so I don't know whether or not anybody else is out there is using it, but uh, Framestore, Jonathan Faulkner, the, the supervisor at Framestore, he presented it to Rob and I, and we were just like, well, this is amazing. We, we don't need to wait on tracked plates you know, for previs, uh, sorry, for post-vis. We don't need to wait on the process. We can literally supply you a scene and you can come back to us overnight with a, a full set of animation proposals for the entire scene. Wow. It was impeccable. The reason why I asked about third floor is because I've interviewed them and they have their own editors, but previs editors cut things very differently than you might cut them. That goes exactly to my point of why uh, I find it useful to come on early in the process uh, because previous editors are some of the, the greatest and uh, unspoken heroes in the industry. Uh, they'll be handed one uh, sequence and told put it together without necessarily the context of the editorial style of how the rest of the movie is going to be put together. And that's not their fault, um, but it is a. it does present you with a problem when you know, scenes around a previous sequence are cut one way, and then the that sequence that was previous nine months earlier is shot exactly the way that it was assembled by the previous editor. And then you have a, a conflict of styles and tone. And that's something that we tried to combat on Detective Pikachu by having me assembling previous from the very, very beginning. And I've heard, I've talked to those previs editors, and one of the things that they mention is, you know, they're working with pretty crappy visuals. And so if you see a wide shot, like that opening wide shot in Pikachu, not the opening one, but where you first see the entire universe of the characters, yeah, like, wow, that's so visually stunning. I want to look at that for a while. And for them, yeah. it's a crappy visual, and you're like, I just want to be on this for one second and be off. Yeah. But then when you yeah. can see it in the full glory, you're like, no, I want to sit here for 10 seconds. So they don't have that benefit. And they also don't have the benefit of they don't get the actual characters. So when you have to sit down and look at Iron Man's face as he cries about a yeah. lost friend or something, those people are just seeing like an Iron Man face and they're like, okay, I've been on that long enough, let's go. And yeah. you are going, oh my gosh, this is a great emotional moment. So they're definitely hampered. They are, they are um, absolutely um, 
hampered is absolutely the right word, or hindered um, yeah. by the certainly a lack of uh, respect for them by people who might be initially putting the, the movie together, but also by a lack of context in that everything is context when you're putting a scene together. And if you, for instance, haven't read the script of the movie, how on earth are you going to be able to uh, put a scene together that honors everything that precedes it and follows it? You, you have previous editors who desperately want to honor the the the, uh, the film that they're cutting a sequence together for but then you can also have some characters who haven't been given any of the information i've been in a situation on one occasion where uh, a previous supervisor was charged with going away um, and putting a sequence together based upon a series of notes the director and i put together and came back with something that had nothing to do with what we had pitched them, purely because they thought that the scene would be better if it opened this way and ended that way. The irony being that the character that they opened the scene with died earlier on in the film. So they had no idea of that, but they had this amazing CG asset that they wanted to use and present. And in that situation, it is very, very frustrating the fact that there is still a disconnect in pre-production between the previous houses and production because time can be wasted when uh, somebody is desperate to give the best job they can but ha isn't presented with all of the, the tools to do that or alternatively uh, just decides to go off on a tangent. <laughs> uh, especially on a movie with a lot of previs, they tend to be movies that are kind of secretive. So yes. they do not give the entire script to the previs no. editor. So it's not even like they're just ignoring looking at the previous scene and the next scene, they don't even have them. No, it is a real problem because so much of the budget of the movie uh, and the uh, shooting process of the movie is now based upon work that is done by this group of extremely talented people, as I say, unsung heroes early on in the process. And yet they aren't always given all of the information that they need in order to present the best possible sequence. That is the reason why I think it is important for editors to come on now um, on these big visual effects movies long before shoot because it enables uh, a continuity of tone, structure, rhythm and pace that uh, helps the previous company do the best job that they possibly can and the uh, production end up shooting something that has been uh, tonally and creatively and aesthetically agreed by the director. You mentioned earlier that you uh, tend to get a lot of these visual effects movies. Do you think the trajectory of your career has been because of a, a background as a VFX editor early on or the VFX work you did? Most definitely. It's a very interesting career path in that, as with, I suspect, anybody's career, you could never really, or I could never really have predicted the way that it went. And in the case of visual effects, um, the reason for that is visual effects don't exactly float my boat. My favorite films don't have visual effects in them. And yet at the same time, uh, I feel very privileged. I, I started taking visual effects editing work, frankly, because it paid more money than the first assistant uh, job. And 
the reason that it did that in the early days, at least, was that you were coming out of the visual effects budget rather than the editorial budget. And the visual effects budget is clearly uh, gargantuan in comparison. Uh, I it, it, that wasn't me being money grabbing in any way. That was me as a new parent uh, with a mortgage mm-hmm. uh, needing to just get a little bit of extra cash if I could. The, the downside of visual effects editing is that it's a lot of admin. It's a lot of technical admin, which frankly never interested me. And if you ask many of the visual effects producers who were forced to work with me in the past, they will agree. <laughs> uh, poor, poor people who had to deal with my uh, visual effects admin. It's amazing that I I was offered more than one job, to be honest with you. However, <laughs> the reason I survived um, was because another aspect of the visual effects editing was putting together avid comps. You know, basically just something using the elements that you have to people now do with After Effects with, from within editorial, but something quick uh, and dirty that the director and the editor can look at and go, well, you know what, actually the sequence will work, or well, I can see now we need to extend that shot by 16 frames. You know, so because that that, that ingratiates yourself with the editor and director, I start getting a few uh, visual effects editing jobs. And from that, uh, you know, worked with you know some of the, direct, the greatest directors in the world. So I can't knock it. But at the same time, um, you know, again, the wonderful benefit of that is that, on the whole, the large majority of the movies that I end up being offered are visual effects heavy films. But I would like to think at least that, uh, with the exception of uh, a couple. I normally would err on the side of movies that are driven by story and character where visual effects is one of the tools that you use as a storyteller. My favorite films are conversations between people in a cafe or the end of The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, three men looking at each other in in a graveyard. Those are my favorite films it's just by the nature of the career path that i've had i end up cutting different ones i think of of gravity you know as, as a story driven as, as incredibly visually effects heavy as that movie is i still yeah. think of it as a story personal you know character driven movie and pikachu's much the same way i mean when you think of ryan reynolds character you know pikachu and, and justice it's a great buddy movie obviously filled with vfx I, I met uh, with Rob Letterman over Skype uh, about the job, and I hadn't, I didn't think I'd read the script at the time. Uh, no, I hadn't. But I was taken by his pitch about how this was uh, a father and son story. And there happened to be some characters in it who would need to be uh, generated using visual effects. But ultimately, it was the heart and the charm of what he uh, wanted to bring to the, the movie that was the reason that I wanted to do the movie. And I did say to him, I'll be honest with you, I don't know what Pokemon are. But he was great because he said, well, look, I know exactly what they are. And the benefit is, is that for the two of us to be putting the film together, that will mean that you'll always have an eye on whether or not this film plays to people who aren't aware of what the Pokemon universe is. And for whatever reason, I have to say, I was very pleased when some of the reviews talked about how this wasn't a movie that was just for Pokemon fans, but it was a, a movie that everybody could enjoy because I think that was 
Uh, I can't say that it was directly responsible because of me, because it was a deliberate move on Rob's part. But for me, the fact that we created a story about Pokemon that reached out to a, a much broader audience and seems to have succeeded in that, in terms of storytelling, I'm very proud of that. Uh, yeah, I had had no clue. As a matter of fact, I didn't really want to watch the movie because I had I didn't know what it was. Yeah, and I completely enjoyed the movie. I had like you, I have no idea what a Pokemon was, and I loved the film. What I wanted to point out, I would love to have you talk about a little bit more is when you did that interview on Skype with him. Mm. You didn't. You would. You might think, oh, I should point out how much of a Pokemon fa- fan I am. But instead, you just were you, and that's actually what got you the job. I would hope so, but at the same time, I don't think, as as an editor, you spend so much time with a director, um, locked up in a room with them. And you can't um, fake it. <laughs> sorry? And you can't fake it. And you can't, and I can't fake it. Let's put it that way. So for me, it would be doing both myself and the director a, a disservice to try and want to lie my way through an interview. That's not to say that um, I don't need the work because I'm a jobbing editor like anybody else. Um, we all have bills to pay. And so it's when a job comes up, it's not like I decide which job I'm going to do. It's the same for anybody at, at sort of you know, my level, my, my colleagues at the minute. We all need to work. But at the same time, I think you have to respect the director enough to be able to say, look, I'm going to lay it flat on the line for you. I don't know what what Pokemon are. But from everything that you're saying and the fact that I think you and I get on and the fact that uh, I like, I I respect the experience you have as a director and your intentions, if I'm honest with you, you can be honest with me and we should have a a much uh, more uh, collaborative uh, experience together for, uh, for it. Did you feel at a disadvantage because you hadn't seen the script? Is that something you like to do before you have that kind of conversation? It depends on the movie. You know, in the case of Detective Pikachu, to be honest with you, the reason I was initially interested was because I'd heard great things about Robert Letterman and I'd seen some of his movies and he was somebody that I wanted to work with. There are some projects where you don't necessarily know about the director or the production company. And in, in those situations, clearly, you, you'll get a script and you'll like the script. And it's off the back of that that you'll, you'll hope to have a, an, on, an ongoing conversation with these people. But what entices me about a story and what ultimately may get me a job, um, there's never really any set rule i got two other questions for you. One is there's a lot of flashbacks in this movie. What's the key to using a flashback or getting in and out the transitions between flashbacks? It's a great question because in Detective Pikachu, the whole structure of the movie is built around flashbacks. And uh, when you delve into it, it's, there are, it opens with uh, some flashbacks that are Tim's flashbacks of his own memories. And it ends with flashbacks that are imposed flashbacks where one of the main characters is projecting uh, his own memories upon Tim and uh, Detective Pikachu. And so 
Yeah, it's interesting when you get into flashbacks is it's all about the perspective of the character from the point of view of the story that you're playing. The specific aesthetic transitions are something that is a uh, is always a conversation. For instance, you know, if it's a in the case of Tim, you know, we decided to put a slight sepia effect on, which, you know, some may say is a little stereotypical. But at the same time, I think it served the purposes of, of what we're talking about. Then you're also dealing with uh, the storytelling aspects of it. So, for instance, there is a flashback in Detective Pikachu that is interrupted. And information that uh, has been given to the audience during that flashback is cut off at a crucial moment. And so the decisions you make over how much story to convey to the audience up until that point during that flashback, they affect everything that has preceded that scene and everything that follows it. And so flashbacks are, for me, at once the most interesting part of any film that I've worked on because there are so many decisions that need to be made within them and around them, and they can affect the entire structure of the movie. And for those exact same reasons, the most difficult part of anything that uh, I've been involved in, in that hopefully they appear simple and part of the overall DNA of the storytelling, but where to place them and how much information to give and crucially the perspective, how much information to give from the perspective of that character that gives the audience enough information, but at the same time doesn't, betray the fact that you're only seeing that flashback from that character's perspective. All of those decisions are um, at the very heart of what film editing is is all about. Rob and I were always talking very respectfully about Rashomon because, um, you know, clearly there are nods of respect to that format. Flashbacks are probably the, the uh, one of the most underrated tools um, a director and editor can use because they can be used in a very simple fashion or they can be used in a very complex fashion. And uh, I hope that we use them in a way that the audience or the audience can understand in Detective Pikachu. And yet it was the, the points in the movie that we uh, we spent most time debating. I want to talk about three things about these flashbacks. Yeah. Uh, the first one, I want to make a point to the, to the people who haven't seen the movie. The main flashback, that is used throughout the movie is given it's depending on how much of it is re- the exact moment is revealed and by whose perspective it's revealed from. Correct. That's the big question. And so what I wanted to ask was how different was your edit from the script with the, in regards to the flashbacks? Quite different. Very interesting. Yeah. What, because, why? Uh, because there's that usual evolution that happens on movies of this size where as you're going along, uh, we may change some dialogue and then we may have another conversation about, you know, what actually, because we weren't due to shoot some of the, the flashbacks until later on in the schedule, it becomes, well, wait a second, should we actually be showing Pikachu in that shot? Because that affects the perspective of this character and you know there's a chain reaction that you 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 have to be considering and it's constantly evolving let's put it this way the story didn't change but the point of view of who was seeing what definitely was part of that ongoing debate 
because we had to audition it several times in the context of the whole movie. Because you can come up with a great idea about, you know what, if we actually played that moment from this character's point of view, it might it might radically uh, clarify this story moment. But then you really do have to sit back and watch that that one change, that one flashback in the context of the whole movie, because it does have a ripple effect. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a very time-consuming process. So yes, the content and the nature of all of the flashbacks in the movie was different from what was originally scripted, but always in a very positive way. Always, you know what, we could do this, we could do that, because with flashbacks, it's the, the surrounding material that you're, you're putting together that is informing the flashbacks and vice versa. And so you're always trying to come up with a better way of doing it. You kind of mentioned that, you know, putting a sepia tone might be a little cliched, but if you don't have some kind of method, either that there's a transition effect or a CGO or black and white or blurry edges, sometimes you lose the audience. The audience has to immediately know they're in a flashback unless it's some kind of device where you're not supposed to know. But if you, if the audience doesn't know you're in a flashback, then all this information goes past them and then they go, wait a minute, we're in a flashback. What did I just listen to? And then they're lost. And by the way, there were, you know, clearly there were points when uh, I was experimenting with something like that and I would run it for Rob and he would say, I'm sorry, Adam, I, I've lost the context. And I would, he would be telling me exactly what I had suspected, which was it wasn't working that way. And it, it can be just by adding a visual aesthetic like a sepia tone isn't always enough. But we believe for the audience that we were trying to make this film for that the simple tools are often the... Uh, the best. Mm-hmm. They work for a reason. Um, so, again, it's about perspective and it's about context. And if you can give the audience enough context to understand not only they're seeing a flashback, but on this occasion you're seeing a flashback of the same event from a different character's point of view, as long as you have given them enough information visually and audibly for them to make that uh, mental transition and understand where they are at, then you don't lose them. The moment they are confused about what the context is and what the perspective is on that moment, then you lose them. And at that moment, you're in danger of uh, losing them from that point onwards. Mark, this has been really informative. Thanks so much for being so generous with your time. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure talking to fellow editors anytime. You know, it's, it's one of the few frankly, the few joys that we get, because certainly for me, there's a lot of pain in the, in the process of what, what I do as a job. So um, thanks, man. All the very best. Hope to speak to you soon. Thanks so much. Great talking with you again. It's been a pleasure as usual. Bye, Mark. This has been the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hallfish. Thanks for listening to the Art of the Cut podcast. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for more than 200 interviews with the world's top editors. Thanks again to my guest, Mark Sanger, ACE. I'm Steve Hallfish. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, make sure to tell a filmmaking friend about Art of the Cut.